Welcome to Bone to Pick. Happy New Year, everybody. I can't think of a better way to kick off 2013 than by sitting down with our, our featured guest for January, the one and only, the great Chris Bote. Um, I've had the privilege of knowing Chris for almost 30 years now, and he is, without Good question, Lord, <laughs> without question, one of the most inspiring, uh, driven, intelligent, and talented musicians uh, I've ever worked with. Um, he is the number one selling jazz artist in the world today. He has had uh, three number one selling jazz albums on the Billboard uh, jazz chart. Uh, he's received a cluster of Grammy nominations. He's sold over three million albums worldwide. And um, as musicians, uh, we often like to list who we've performed with and toured with. And Chris has reached that rare uh, level where he can list the uh, musicians and artists who have performed and toured with him. And it is an impressive list for sure. It includes Sting, James Taylor, Paul Simon, Herbie Hancock, Steven Tyler, Yo-Yo Ma, Andrea Bocelli, uh, David Foster, Joni Mitchell, just to name a few. Uh, he was named one of the 50 most beautiful people by People <laughs> Magazine. Uh, he's dated Katie Kirk. He has done it all. Um, one of the attributes that I really wanted to say right off the bat that uh, has impressed me about Chris is he's one of those individuals who makes everybody around him better. He brings an energy to everything that he does. And uh, I kind of liken it to sports personalities. You think back to the Larry Bird, Magic Johnson era, and everybody always said those two guys really made everybody on the court better. Same for Chris Bote in terms of musicians. Um, and I know on a personal level, uh, my life and career uh, have been greatly inf influenced by Chris, and uh, without the association with him, it would have been vastly different. So it's really a, an incredible attribute that doesn't get mentioned a lot. Um, we are here today in uh, Lower Manhattan at the uh, beautiful Mercer Hotel. Chris is kind enough to invite us into his suite uh, to spend a little time talking about his, his great career. And I'm reasonably sure you're the only brass player staying here uh, today, and uh, at least the only brass player paying for his own room. Let's put it that way. Uh, but it's it's great to be here, uh, Chris. Thank you so much for taking the time, Thanks, and uh, really looking forward to talking about your extraordinary life. Do I have to call career. you Michael? Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> we well, go we go so far back, and and. I is it is it thirty years? It's, it's 30 almost. Years. I think it's almost. I think 1984 was when we first met. But man, time flies. It's it just crazy. It has. But Chris, thank you so much. Um, I wanted to start off by kind of asking you a question that I was thinking of saving to the end of the interview, but I thought about it and I thought it would give us some insight into um, into Chris Bodie and and would give us an overall kind of viewpoint as we as we go through the interview. When you look back on your extraordinary career and what you've created in your life. And you look at the challenges that a jazz instrumentalist faces today. Um, what kind of what is, was your game plan in building what has become this incredible career? And and specifically, you know, when you've gone through those inevitable difficulties and roadblocks, what was it that kept you going and kept kept you driven through the whole process? Well, I first of all, I, I don't. I think that when you're on the ride, you know, in the and you you. You were firsthand with this because we did it together. You know, like there were gigs that you and I did that paid virtually nothing. And I remember we played in the subway and we played on Fifth Avenue on the street in the cold. And you know what I mean? Like like gigs that you, now I wouldn't want to do today. But at the time, we thought they were great. You know, and I, and I I think that there's something that that's inherently good about you know if you can scrape up enough money together to pay your landlord. I thought I'd won an Academy Award. You know what I mean? Like it's kind of like the naivete part of it acts as to keep you insulated from maybe like 
being depressed mm -hmm. about what where you might be in the long picture but the little tiny goals you know we got this gig you know we we get some horn section gig we we play in this record we thought we'd it was the greatest you know and, and each one of those little stepping stones leads you to a self of like accomplishment but if you were to start at the beginning and say well how can i arrive from here to here uh you know to young people ask me well how can i get a career like yours and i'm like i i don't know you know you need <laughs> yeah, to like sure. be you need to be like worried about impressing the guy that's sitting next to you in in some section or some in in the audience or some band director or whatever it is and not try to worry about being you know an, an international act you know it's that it's the small steps that lead to the to the bigger game to answer your question i don't know it i can't did. remember yeah. what the <laughs> no it's a great it's a great way to look at it i think i read an article uh an interview in some magazine that you had given and you you talked about how there was no plan b and yeah. that your whole, yeah. you were driven by, this is yeah. what I'm going to achieve. Yeah. And, and, and uh, I mean, I think it speaks to that. Like, you take each step and each day, one, one day and one step at a time. And also knowing, um, I mean, in, in jazz, it's, it's tough because you have a, a real sense of purity and history that goes along with a lot of the um, kids and people that want to play jazz music. And I think that for me, I made the conscious decision to know within myself what I didn't want to do. You know, it's one thing to say, oh, I'd like to have this career, but I knew I didn't want to do that. And, and mm -hmm. it's sort of intersected in, this, in the sense when, when I first moved to New York, it was maybe about a year, year and a half after the whole Wynton Marsalis explosion onto the scene. And somehow I thought to myself, and, and, and in hindsight, it was the proper way to look at things that that Winton, by his incredible immense talent, was setting up basically a glass ceiling, and no one's going to penetrate that glass ceiling doing Winton, mm -hmm. you know, like mm -hmm. trying to outdo Winton. So you have now like a, a long litany of, of people that are following in Winton's footsteps, which is great, you know, but if you want to like penetrate, have your own kind of sense of self, you better go over here and find your own ceiling, you know, mm -hmm. some, some, some along those lines, you know, and so I kind of thought to myself I wanted to release like a very straight ahead purist jazz record where I'm playing, you know, f 15 choruses of all the things you are or something. It, it, I'm never going to do it like Winton, so don't try, you know, mm -hmm. and so I got into a whole bunch of other range of stuff to try to find the right platform for, for me as an artist. And that's what I thought in 1985. Having I didn't even make my first record till 10 years after that. So I, I think like in your gut, you need to kind of know where you need to go. And then along the way, you need to be very, very kind of focused and single-minded in your day-to-day -day goals rather mm -hmm. than letting the overall goal kind of like bowl you over and like take, take bad precedent. Mm -hmm. That's great. Great piece of advice. Um, let's take a step back and look at your formative years. I know you grew up in Oregon. Um, you spent some time in Italy as a youngster. You went to Indiana University where you studied with David Baker, the great Bill Adam. I know you also studied with Woody Shaw, and maybe you could also, along the same lines, touch on some of the influences. I mean, you've alluded to them, but I know Tom Harrell was an influence. I know Miles, of course, was a big influence, Freddie Hubbard. Mm -hmm. um, but maybe if you can share some of your thoughts about those that time of your life. Well, I, I grew up in Oregon, and there's nothing to do in Oregon. You know, it's a... <laughs> There's nothing to do in Indiana either, <laughs> so I guess I just practiced, and you know, and, and and I think that those, especially Indiana University, as opposed to other schools like Berkeley or Juilliard, where a kid that comes to Juilliard, you know, they're worried about like paying the rent and how they deal with the subway, you know, like 
And in hindsight, again, you know, having gone to Indiana, there was nothing to do except practice, you know, and and there was a, a camaraderie a camaraderie amongst the Bill Adams students there that really applauded people practicing, you know. So we were in there eight, nine hours, ten hours. I mean, it was it was all day long practicing the foundation, which which to this day, every day I wake up and just go, thank God I met Mr. Adam um, and 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 was exposed to his style of teaching. But for trumpet players, you know, you're only going to go to a few great, great trumpet players. You named four of them right there, mm -hmm. you know. But uh, for me, I heard Miles Davis's My Funny Valentine um, uh, album from his Four and More concert and when I was 12. And I, I heard that, and I, I went like, my God, I mean, my life changed. Because I, 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 I was familiar with Doc, and I was familiar with Maynard and Al Hurt and Louis Armstrong. And that the way that they played, like a very joyous, kind of like reaching bravado sound. Mm -hmm. And then I heard this radically different thing, this brooding kind of melancholy. And the sound kind of went in, inward, you know? And, and it resonated with me, and I thought, at that moment, I thought, I want to be a trumpet player for the rest of my life. I didn't think about all this, but I thought about a connection to this instrument. You know? mm. And in the weirdest twist of fates, I was invited to the White House last year to perform for the Obamas and the Clintons and, and the Carters. And they invited myself and Herbie Hancock to play My Funny Valentine. Mm. So, I mean, like a, a weird just... I mean, what are the odds that, you know, That's awesome. the yeah. whitest guy to ever play the trumpet <laughs> <laughs> arrives at the oh, White right. House to, like, play with, with Herbie Hancock, who made that song, you know. Yeah. Oh, that's an awesome story. Yeah, I had heard that Randy Brecker actually had told me that he was going down to, uh, was involved in some way, and that yeah. you were playing with yeah. Herbie. So that was, that, I, I vicariously got a lot of uh, enjoyment And the, the funniest thing is awesome. we, got, we got to the sound check, and, and, uh, and Herbie said, well, so how do you want to do My Funny Valentine? I was like, Herbie, that's like, that's like playing horse with Michael Jordan. And he goes, well, what do you want me to stand? I don't know what. You post up, I'll throw you. You're Herbie Hancock. You play the way you invented it. You take the shot. Go ahead. No, I'm good. I'm good. Well, you know, as we talked about, I had the very, very good fortune of meeting Chris in 1984 uh, when he joined Buddy Rich's band. Uh, it was a particularly good time for Buddy's band because we were backing up Frank Sinatra on various concerts uh, quite a bit back then. And I remember when Chris joined the band, he was a young guy. Chris has always looked amazing and had this youthful uh, appearance even now. And, and uh, back then he looked very young and uh, everybody was kind of wondering, oh, what's, what's this guy going to be like? And he totally bowled everybody over and uh, it was clear that he had an immense amount of talent as a, as a very young man. And, I couldn't um, play out of the staff. <laughs> Au contraire. I, I remember you uh, many times playing out of the staff. But, um, I, and I remember thinking, you know, you're, you're, you're humble and you're very uh, uh, nice about your description of yourself. But I remember thinking at the time that you had a, something great within you and, and greatness. And it's, I, I've, you know, it's probably a handful of people that I've met in my life that I felt that way about. Um, but Chris, maybe you could just share um, some thoughts about that time of your career when it's just getting going, and, and in particular, what it was like playing with Mr. Sinatra back uh, at that time. Well, that was fun. My time with Buddy, however, wasn't so great. You know? <laughs> well, I, yeah, I get here again. You learn what you don't want to do. I, I, I was forever kind of jilted into into maybe recognizing that playing in a big band was not my thing. Mm -hmm. You know, the Sinatra gig. Well, you did many, many gigs with Sinatra, but the ones that we did with Sinatra, I think it was like a 10-day run or something like that at the Universal Amphitheater. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, back when it was an open-air theater, I believe. And, um, and it was 
my, you know, I literally dropped out of bad message for kids, stay in school. <laughs> uh, but, you know, but, they, but I, I, I left school in the middle of my fourth year, went right to, um, to Los Angeles, got off the plane and, and, um, and there we were at Soundcheck. And that night, you know, there's Quincy Jones and Angie Dickinson and all the movie stars of the day and, and out walk Sinatra. And we did that show and, <clears throat> and his voice was fantastic. You know, they were doing yeah. In the Wee Small Hours in the Morning, Guess I'll Hang, hang My Tears Out to Dry. And, and with that orchestra and it was, it was really, really great. And then subsequently, then we went on, on a, I only lasted five weeks or something like that with Buddy, uh, going, doing a regular tour across the country. And boy, that was an experience. Reality <laughs> sets in. Rea more, reality. More like depression reality sets in sets after in, the, yeah. uh, the uh, I, I just, Sinatra event. I just, what, you know, I think Buddy liked a more super, super traditional kind of big spider back influenced trumpet player, which at the time being a, you know, kind of idealistic college kid um i was into you know woody shaw and tom harrell and kind of a little more esoteric stuff um which maybe now if i was doing that gig i would have a, a different viewpoint on it mm -hmm. but at the time i was like oh you know it was a Anyhow, Buddy and I probably weren't the best of friends, you know? <laughs> well, I think it's a long list that uh, wasn't the best of friends with Buddy. But, uh, yeah. but uh, it's interesting perspective, and, and obviously your taste in playing uh, served you well as, as you went forward. Um, you moved to New York in 1985, mm -hmm. and um, you began working almost immediately as a studio musician. And uh, once again, I was fortunate to be uh, called by Chris uh, and a, a mutual friend of ours. They were forming a horn section, uh, Chris along with the gentleman named Kent Smith, who's a great friend of ours, great musician, great trumpet player. Um, and they formed a horn section, which became known as the New West Horns and featured Chris and Kent, along with a fabulous saxophone player, one of the best of our generation, a gentleman mm -hmm. named Andy Stitzer, and myself on trombone. And uh, uh, we were, you know, largely because of Chris, he was kind of a catalyst to the whole section, both musically and the, the business side of it. And we went on to record with Bob Dylan and Roger Daltrey and we had our little heavy metal run there with Twisted Sister and Winger and Rat and uh, Aretha Franklin, Scritti Politti, The System. We did quite a bit of TV work. Um, Chris ended up meeting a gentleman named Ed Kalahoff, who became, uh, who was a great uh, arranger and uh, composer and had written a lot of music, including stuff for Monday Night Football and ABC Sports, various news themes. Um, anyway, Chris, can you kind of talk about that time in your life? It seemed like you went from getting here to doing studio work really quickly, and a yeah. lot of us benefited from that, and you kind of brought us along in, in the whole thing. Well, when I was, you know, when we were in college, uh, and our generation, you know, we looked to the generation before us, and there were there was a really great template that was set up, and that basically melted down to this. It was like these incredible musicians that were artists that would also become like very notable sidemen, uh, and they were doing studio work, and they would include David Sanborn, Michael Brecker, Richard T, Steve Gadd, Jerry Hay, and all the West Coast guys, Randy Brecker, of course, Lou Sola. Um, and so when, when we arrived on, and our generation came here uh, um, to play music, there was, a, there was a template already set up of people you could look up to and say, well, how can we do that, you know? And, and I, I just always thought, like, um, I really admired what Randy Brecker and what Jerry Hay did, you know, in their individual mm -hmm. styles and the way they approached horn section, and I thought there would be a way for us to to break into the scene. And I remember the first couple of years, everyone saying, oh, no, it can't be done. It'll never be done. And I think that by us being sort of open to working with younger bands or, or acts that didn't know, I mean, I think a lot of times acts 
famous, even famous acts, they get intimidated. Like, well, what do we do at horns? We'll, we'll just get our friend from high school to play some horns. They don't really know, like, you know, like horn playing is as is as much about, you know, a real crafts a craft thing as a drummer. You know, like these bands will spend all the money on the drummer and they'll spend no time thinking about the horn section. You know, and so I think what we brought is. Uh, accessibility, so we'd work well with the artists, like people like David Frank from the System, or even Arif Martin um, uh, when he was here. Um, we miss him very much, and um, uh, and so we worked well with those kind of people. And also, we brought, you know, kind of youthful energy and stuff like that. And and it, and probably of all the people that you and I worked with, Ed Kalahoff was the guy that became kind of our entree back into the mainstream of studio work. Because there was a there was a little window there of maybe five or six seven years where we were doing one two really big orchestra brass powerful horn section days and sometimes they'd be four hours long sometimes they'd be seventeen hours long remember mm -hmm. those like wide world sports absolutely be, there'd be a yeah. hundred and eight different pieces of music that we'd have to do long before they had Pro Tools and put it all together you know we'd have to play each edit in right and. And so you learned, you know, over that course of time, you'd see how records were made. We were looking, we were witnessing firsthand how great producers, like, like, like Arif Martin and David Frank, would make records, and then we'd go see how great orchestra stuff was put together, like with Ed Kalahoff, and and then and it kind of gave us um, um, respect from the older older guy, the older mm -hmm. you know, the older crew, you know, and so. Uh, so we had all of a sudden, I was sitting in sessions all the time with Randy Brecker and Lou Soloff. And, mm -hmm. and it was really, really a fun, super fun time. And, me, you know, we used to come out of those sessions just flying high. It was great. It was so fantastic. And here again goes back to my original thing. You know, like you, 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 you become fascinated with what you're doing and you try to put your all into it. And we did that. And I think we served our clients, clients, really well. Mm-hmm. Well, wow, well said. Yeah, I, I certainly remember, uh, and I'll never forget some of those 12, 14, 17 oh, yeah. hour dates with Ed that was just. Uh, and, 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 but it and kept our going. Friends, it was we, we'd have to hire other musicians. And I remember the first time, like, maybe it was Lou or something, they'd come in and go, or Alan Rubin. You know, Alan was very funny at the <laughs> And he'd come in and go, You're, We're going to do how many? What? <laughs> I mean, and we were crazy. We would have, we would have, you know, we didn't care. We just wanted to work, yeah. and we wanted to, uh, we wanted to be a part of it, and we wanted to feel like we had our place in the studio world because, because the studio world was vibrant. It was the next step if you could be in the studio world. And once I got known in the studio world, then the next thing you know, Paul Simon's looking for a musician, and he asks asks for a recommendation of who's you know, the new trumpet guy on the block, and they, they knew me from the studio world, and Lenny Pickett was the guy that recommended me, and David mm. Torn, the guitarist, and they both recommended me, and bang, the next thing I know, I'm in Paul Simon's band standing next to Michael Brecker for a year and a half. You know, so everything has its little, you know, place in the way that it fits in the Rubik's Cube, you know, mm -hmm. to make it work. Mm -hmm. um, well, that leads me right into what I was going to ask you. Can you talk a little bit about how your relationship with Paul has evolved over the years? I know you spent that time touring. And then at the same time, I know you became close with Michael Brecker, the late, great Michael Brecker. Um, you became close both musically and personally, I think, mm -hmm. uh, through Paul's gig. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about maybe the impact that Michael had uh, on you? Well, a nicer person in the world there isn't. And it mm -hmm. just happened to intersect with one of the greatest saxophone players ever, you know, along with John Coltrane and a handful mm -hmm. of others. You know, the list is very, very short. Um, but the but the the humble kind of gentleman side of Michael is something that really I think people remember. Um, 
I stood next to him when he was the featured soloist in Paul Simon's group. So he took the gig to not only because he was friendly with Paul, uh, but to walk out on stage when Paul took a break so he could get Paul's audience to find out about Michael. Uh, and even am uh, amongst all that, you know, and I'm sure he was being paid a fortune and I was being paid just what, you know, a starting guy gets paid. He never made me feel like he always made it feel like he stood in the section next to me uh, and never made me feel like, oh, I'm this, you know, celebrity saxophonist and you're just a peon, you know. He was never like that at all. And he was never like that with anyone. Mm -hmm. And and yet when he walked to the stage and played the saxophone, everyone was like, okay, check. <laughs> you know? um, and it's just, uh, that, that's, you know, he was always gracious and, and, and wonderful. And, and that's what I really remember mostly about Michael and complimentary about Herbie's that way too, in a lot of respects, you know, but they, they both had that, that very sense of humbleness and, and, uh, and they compliment other people often. Mm -hmm. That's great, great stuff. In 1994, you were contacted by uh, some management folks from the Rolling Stones about putting a horn section together <coughs> to go up and uh, audition for what would become their Voodoo Lounge World Tour. Um, your solo career was just getting started then, and I remember it like it was yesterday. It was uh, amazing. And you, you passed on the audition, but recommended Kent and Andy and myself to go up and, and audition for them. And that turned into a 15-year, um, five-world tour gig, which we will always be extremely grateful to you for. Um, but more importantly, um, when you look back at that, um, you passed on a, a coveted gig by any estimation. And to, you wanted to, from what I remember, wanted to give 100% of your energy into your solo career. And I think it really speaks a lot about you as an artist and as a person that you were uh, dedicated to what you're, what you wanted to accomplish, and, and it was as hard as it is to get to the level. I mean, there's only one Chris Bodie. Without, without that sounding cliche, that's what it is. Um, can you talk about the, the thinking that you were going through at that time, uh, kind of a pivotal point in your career, I would imagine? Yeah, I, I, well, maybe more than anything, I kind of felt maybe I, I shouldn't be playing um, another long period of tour that would take, a, I just was signed to Verve Records like maybe six months before that phone call mm -hmm. came in. So we were just about ready to start making this album and I'd been working on the demo tapes w along with Andy Snitzer, uh, hardcore, to try to get a record deal. That whole process um, of getting a record deal takes, you know, one, two years and the contract signed and the lawyers go blah, blah, blah. So I had this opportunity, They're, they had the record and I was afraid that if I went off and did this tour that I would lose out on the ability to make an album. Mm. Uh, and I, I, I've never, you know, I've never thought of myself, you know, as a rock trumpet player, you know, I, and I, and I kind of, the opportunity to make my kind of jazz or whatever it is, you know, an album for Verve at that time, I thought, I want to take this dice. I want to roll this dice and see what I can go do. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and, and as much as I, I thought, what am I doing? <laughs> Good Lord. Uh, I, I kind of, I, I thought that it was for the right thing to do. You know, it, it, felt, it felt like the right move. It did nothing, I never grappled with it outside of the fact that I just, for the first couple of years, or, you know, I, I, I thought maybe financially it was the wrong move for sure. <laughs> it, well, in the short, and maybe in the short run, but I think in the long run, yeah. uh, in all ways, it ended up being the right yeah. move for yeah. sure. Yeah, for sure. Great stuff. Um, in 1999, um, I think it was 1999, you began what seems like a career-changing, maybe even life-changing uh, association with Sting. Yeah. And um, you know, you've gone on to tour with him extensively, played on many of his projects. He's 
toured and, and played on and sang on your projects. Um, can you share with us as much as you'd like, just a little bit about that fruitful yeah. relationship? I, I mean, uh, the one thing I'm most proud of in my life, even more than success, is my friendship with him. You know, he and Trudy, and uh, they become my family. I mean, he's arguably, you know, one of my closest friends. And but it started out as um, him. We met in London uh, at a bar uh, where I was over in London working with John Barry at the time, and I had told Sting I was going to be there. And he said, "Oh, meet me at this uh, bar. We'll have a drink. I need to talk to you about something." I said, "Okay." I didn't know him that well at the time, and and he sat me down. And he said, "Listen, you have like three or four records out already, and you're known amongst musicians." Uh, he goes, "But I think that you need to lay down your arms." you know, and, and not do your solo career for a few years, come out and tour with me. And I've had success doing this with Branford, and I think I can do it with you too. I will break the sound of your trumpet to the whole world. Many of those people that are my fans, mm. this is him talking, many of the people that are my fans aren't necessarily jazz fans, but they'll become your fans. And if you're willing to take this risk, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm going to make it work for you. And wow. again, it seemed like a very natural, I, I was just like, and the thing is, is that the most interesting thing about this whole intersection in my life is I was so elated to do that. And my connection with him seemed even at that point very, very strong. And the minute I told my record company, Verve Records, that I was going to go on the road and do uh, this time with Sting, they dropped me. They dropped me from Verve because they thought that I was not committed to my career. And I was devastated, you know, and so I'm in the middle of the Sting tour and and having the time of my life, you know, building building this friendship with this guy um, and the tour ends and I quickly get signed to Columbia Records who kind of saw the momentum that was going on and then Sting gave me my first in a litany of just unbelievable opportunities where he fired me from his band and hired me to be his opening act. Now, you don't make any money as an opening act, but what you do get is you get the opportunity to walk out in front of 10, 20,000 people a night. And he did it throughout the United States and throughout Europe. Mm. So, so we got you know, incredible opportunities. And then from that, someone at the Beacon Theater saw our show and said, you know, my friend Oprah would love this music. You know, got the, the CD from Oprah and we were in uh, um, Germany on tour and, and my manager at the time came to me and said, Oprah wants you on her show like in three days, like now, she loves you. And, you know, thank you, Sting. I had to go to Sting and say, I need to leave the tour. Can you get another opening exit? Go, just take off, you wow. know, and, and go do it and came back. And I mean, that's just one in a hundred, you know, like I'm, I'm more well known for not only my records, but for my PBS specials sure. that we've done here in the United States. Um, but I don't have any of them without having Sting on board first. I mean, it's really, really easy to get certain people to say, I'll be there when you say Sting and the Boston Symphony are going to be there and Yo-Yo Ma, what do you think? You know, they're like, oh, okay, <laughs> sounds great. I'll be there, you know. And so, but if you don't have that first anchor and that friendship and the belief that, you know, that, that an instrumentalist can like penetrate, uh, then it doesn't, nothing happens, you mm. know. And then to find out that we're, we're we, we have such respect for each other as friends and that's that that's everything to me like that that whole relationship has been um from a credibility standpoint from a, a, a life standpoint and from a family sort of standpoint has been has been the defining stamp on my career for mm. me as a person wow 
thanks for sharing all that. I mean, I knew some of that, but that was some really insightful stuff, and it's uh, quite quite uh, amazing. Um, um, you know, you talked about Columbia Records. I think you have released nine or ten, but it's a lot of records now on, on Columbia. Um, your latest is called Impressions, another fantastic recording. Um, a couple of my favorites, I'm Chris Bode in Boston, I mean, you just mentioned that. That is a spectacular recording. I love uh, Italia, the one you did a few years yeah. back. Just great stuff. Um, can you talk a little bit about your relationship with your producer, Bobby Columbia, who's been involved with you, I think, on all the yeah. Co Columbia projects? I, I remember, we, Bobby Columbia is um, drummer, originally, and formed a band called Blood, Sweat and & Tears. And then left Blood, Sweat & Tears to go kind of become a record executive with some a lot of clout. And, you know, had a lot to do with Harry Connick's career and signed, discovered Richard Marks and friendship with Richard. And then he and I, through Paul Simon uh, and Paul Simon's former engineer, um, Roy Halley, uh, got acquainted. and be, We became friends first. And <clears throat> I remember the day that I got dropped from Verve Records. Uh, I was here. We were playing on Long Island at Jones Beach at the time with Sting and I called Bobby who'd kind of become my distant godfather you know like in the business he'd help me out and do stuff but he we didn't really have a, a working relationship at that time he's just a guy I'd call up and and talk you know bounce ideas off of and I called him up and I was I was almost speechless I was so kind of you know I was 39 years old at the time I'd, I'd had this great record deal on Verve and it was gone and I thought my career was over and I was really bumming you know and I called him up and I said Bobby they dropped me. And Bobby goes, uh, where are you? And I said, oh, I'm, I'm driving. He goes, do you, do you have any luggage on you? You got a diary? I said, no, I don't have a diary. I don't care. He goes, well, get a diary and circle today's date and write this as your best day in your life. And I, I said, what are you talking about? He goes, you're, you're, you're going to absolutely say Verve dropping you is the best day that you've ever had when you roll out 10 years. And I'm like, no way. You know, like, this is terrible. And so he goes, mark my words. And he, he has this very positive sort of impact. So what happened is, is that Bobby turns around and gets me a deal on Columbia. And then as my career started to pick up on Columbia, I made a couple of records. And finally, Donnie Einer, who was the president of Columbia at the time, brings Bobby into his office and says, listen, this guy is selling a lot of records for a jazz musician, but we're basically going to like just condemn him to the jazz world or you're going to step up to the plate and you're going to make a record that we can like really go for and 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 Bobby said okay well what kind of record do you want and and uh and and Tony Iron and Bobby and I sat down in a meeting and basically they said don't worry about radio don't worry about anything just make the record you want to make that you think would be a romantic beautiful record and don't play us any demos don't uh -uh. You bring it back to us when it's done, we'll have a glass of wine, we will go promote it, and we'll give you a shot. And they gave me a massive budget hmm. to go play with the orchestra. And basically, I was ripping off, you know, Winton's Hothouse Flowers, a couple of Gil Evans records, John Coltrane, Johnny Hartman, you know, intimate stuff, you know, with orchestra and all that stuff. It, the template's all there, you know. But how does a musician get th three-quarter or half a million dollars to make a record, you know? Well, these two guys concocted it, and so, voila, out comes... Uh, when I fall in love, and it's a hit. And thanks to Oprah, it's really a hit. Mm -hmm. You know, and so the thing starts really taking off. And Bobby Columbia is sitting at home, you know, being my godfather. And I call him up every once in a while. Finally, when the gigs actually start paying, and we actually start really doing it, like selling concert tickets, because you can be famous 
you can have like, you know, you can come off one of these shows, American Idol or something, and you'll be a household name. doesn't mean you'll sell a concert ticket. Mm -hmm. Selling a concert ticket is a completely different animal. Mm -hmm. And you got to go out there and prove it, you know. And, and so finally, after four years of selling concert tickets, I turned around and I said to Bobby, hold on a second. You're the guy that I go to every night. We talk five, six, eight, ten, twelve times a day. And yet you're the one that got me this deal. You're the one that's pulling all the strings. You're, and you're not sharing in this financially. You're going to be my manager. And he goes, I hate managers. I'm never, I don't want to be your manager. They're scumbags. I said, you're my manager. And so uh, I forced him to be my manager. And all along, we've been producing records. He's been my producer. We've had that connection together. But finally, seven, eight years ago, he, it became like a two-man team. So it's, it's basically an office in L.A., and he is an assistant, and, and we, we do the records together. He deals with the record company, and it's a two. And we talk to 12 times a day, and it's been a great, fantastic friendship. Mm. Chris, thanks for sharing all that stuff. Uh, amazing story there. Um, I just wanted to add one thing, because you said the template's all there. There's nothing that you do that doesn't have the Chris Bodie imprint on it. And, and I know a couple years ago, uh, you called me about, uh, originally there was going to be trombone on it, and then it ended up not having trombone, but a project you were doing with Joshua Bell. And I ended up just contracting a small orchestra, which you were kind enough to call me for that. And I was just there observing the whole session. And Gil Goldstein was a great arranger, wrote the, or arranged the music. And you changed some things. And you had all these great people. And Josh was there playing, like, sounding unbelievable. But you were a catalyst for it. And you changed a couple of things that Gil had written. And it made it significantly better. So I think a lot of times... You know, you're, you're, you have a lot of humility in you and you, and you, and, and you talk about the, the people that you uh, look up to and, and appreciate. But your musicianship um, is on everybody the highest of levels and, and you, you always make things better that you're oh, involved thanks. in. Um, you well, know, I'm, very, I'm very opinionated in the studio and Bobby, <laughs> Bobby knows that more than anyone. When we make our records together, you know, I have a very defined kind of way that I want to hear especially where the horn sits, like the actual where it sits in an album. You know, because if you look at a stereo field, uh, and, and it, the one thing that kind of blows me away about when young kids make records now is they think if they go to a club and they're, they're, they're lighting it up at 2 in the morning and everyone's a little intoxicated and they're playing their 10th chorus of Night in Tunisia, they think that if they do that same thing on a microphone in a studio the next day, that it's going to translate and the people are going to be just as excited to hear it. Mm -hmm. It doesn't happen that way. Mm -hmm. You know, and if you look at those great Miles Davis photos of the where, where, where he puts his bell against the microphone drop and what kind of microphone he uses and the kind of reverb you use, you know, and, and, and then that in turn gives the, the trumpet the, the stature to sit in the mix the right way. You take that away, like if you take the actual sonics of an album away, especially for the kind of music we make, you know, we're not the White Stripes. We're not out trying to like make rock records. You know that you can be edgy and do that. But all, my goal is to make is to make this instrument and my records beautiful, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. pretty. You know, you want records that appeal in that way. So so you got to keep chasing that. You know, and you can't you know you can't lose track. And if it gets if the tracks get too cluttered, for me it, it knocks the person out of the box. You know, mm -hmm, and you can't mm -hmm. get to them. Um, well, that actually leads me into a question that I had for you. And, you know, I've had some people who say, yeah, I've heard Chris live. It's so amazing. And I got his records and I didn't, it wasn't the same thing. And then I have other people who say, I love his records and his live. And I've heard you in both contexts. I'm a big fan, both sides of, of that. And maybe you could just talk even a little bit more about 
um, you know, when you hear your records, they're so well crafted. And then I go hear your band, which is the most kick-ass band that you're going to find anywhere. Yeah. And you guys stretch like crazy. I mean, yeah. it's fantastic. And then yeah. the show is, is yeah. by any jazz standards, it's great. I mean, it's really uh, exceptional. But maybe you could just share your it's thought very simple, process. Very simple viewpoint. When you go see Joshua Bell or Long Long, great pianist, or Joshua Bell, great violinist, in concert, uh, and they play all the stuff, and then the audience, when they get to like you know Paganini unaccompanied, and they, they, Josh is going, and then they all stand up and go, oh, <laughs> bravo, bravo, right? Then that same couple will get in their car, they'll drive back to Westchester. Honey, what do you want to listen to? Let's put on some Chopin. Boom, they'll put on Chopin Prelude, Nocturnes, and go to sleep, right? Mm. So mm. if you, the same goes for Miles Davis. Like everyone that's a jazz fan, they love Plug Nickel, they love Sorcerer, they love all that stuff, right? Right, of course. But what does the general public know about Miles Davis? They know two albums, and they're not the jazziest of albums. Well, they're certainly not the most cutting edge. They're Kind of Blue and Sketches of Spain. And the one thread, that those, two threads that those albums have is the concept is restraint. I mean, Miles, you know, when they went out and did all the other records, live in Europe, Tokyo, all that stuff with Sam Rivers, they played the same music off of off of Kind of Blue. They just played it like 50 BPMs quicker and they were just flying all over the place. But that doesn't work for Kind of Blue. Kind of Blue is this moody, subtle, beautiful, hip, cool kind of experience. The same would be, could be said for Sketches of Spain. You know, that, 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 there's not much jazz on Sketches of Spain. It's Miles interpreting the music from Rodrigo, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But, but it's not... It's not like them blowing down a bunch of choruses again of all things you are, you know, sure. Green yeah. Dolphin Street. And so my job as to make a record is I don't want, you know, you don't want to necessarily feel all that chop-oriented stuff, right? You know, when John, Colt John Coltrane and Johnny Hartman record is one of the most beautiful romantic records ever. Mm -hmm. Well, this is the same John Coltrane that played Giant Steps? Yes. Mm -hmm. And he's playing just wonderfully and, and with restraint. So... You want to make records a certain way, but when you stand on that stage to have a concert, you better bring it. I mean, you better you better make it so those people go, uh, I had no, uh, you know, that's why they want to come back. Mm -hmm. And that's the only, that's the only ticket I have. See, I don't have a hit. I never had a hit, right? Never had a hit song, never been on the radio, really, that had hit. So if you look at Buble or these guys have to have massive hits, uh, or Sting or whomever, right? Mm -hmm. So my ticket into the world of music is surround myself with great musicians and go from city to city to city and literally try to win people over old school. So, you know, we went into San Francisco in 2001 and there was an audience of four people and now we do three nights and there are 3,000 people there a night, you know. And so, you, but it's, it's like they leave the show going, well, we had no idea that you, a lot of people, like some of my friends, we played the Hollywood Bowl uh, uh, two years ago in L.A. One of my closest friends, who's never seen me before. He owns a restaurant in the, out there in L.A. and goes, now, Chris, when I come see you at the Hollywood Bowl, is it just going to be you? Like, <laughs> like I'm going to just walk out there and go, <laughs> good evening, friends. I mean, what? But they have no idea. Like, but for a rock show, if you're going to go see Coldplay, you know that you know Chris Martin or whatever is going to be standing there and his band's going to be behind him. There's going to be a light show and there's going to be loud music. Right, and you, right. Hopefully you like the band. Right, or the Stones. You know, Mick's going to be running around. You know what's going to happen. Right, But right. for a trumpet show, it, you got a lot of people doing this. And so you need to, like, make sure that you 
put on a show that people pick up the phone the next day and call their friends and go, I went and saw that blonde guy play the trumpet and this show was incredible. That, that's what happens, you know, and so th the word of mouth has something to do with it. It has everything. That's, that, that's your act. That's different than making records. Mm -hmm. Making mm -hmm. records like, you know, I want to I be, I just want to be chilled. I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to hear all the crazy mm -hmm. for me. Mm -hmm. Wow, really insightful. I hope everybody uh, uh, takes the, those words to heed. That's, yeah, that's right on the money. Uh, Chris, you are a very big supporter and proponent of music education. And I've heard you say it in almost all your shows. You, you take a, a moment to, to talk about how important music education is. And on a personal level, um, about four years ago, I think it was, you gave my youngest son, Zach, who was eight at the time, a trumpet lesson, which was really kind of you. And it had a huge impact on him. I mean, he still talks about it now, and he's still playing. And, and uh, he's a Chris Bodie fan. And, and uh, you know, you're, you're just very generous with your time and your energy uh, to... to, to uh, of being supportive of, of music education, but could you talk about a little bit about music education and and your passion for inspiring young people and young musicians? Well, I'm I'm not necessarily in favor. I'm not one of these people that's talking about the blanket music education as far as being like a school system. Mm -hmm. That's not the music education I'm talking about. Yeah, the no, music for sure. education I'm talking about is how do you get a kid to be inspired to play one of these or piano, or a cello, or bass, or something. Something that's a real instrument. How do you, in this day and age, how do you get the kids away from the things that aren't real instruments? Guitar Hero, News Flash, not a real <laughs> instrument. Not a real instrument. The internet, not a real <laughs> instrument, right? Yeah. So, so what I try to do in whatever little way is to try to inspire a kid to go out in a way, use the, the education system, your band director, your, your marching band, or whatever you're working with. But think, think beyond that. To try to go see a show of yours, or see a show of mine, or go see someone. And then, I mean, I remember when I was a kid, man, I would like, like write Chuck Mangione a letter to see if I could meet him, or write Tom Harrell a letter. I mean, I had the chutzpah, which basically means the audacity, to write Tom Harrell a letter when I was in college and said, Tom, I'm showing up in New York. Can I stay with you? Like, what an idiot, you know? Like, <laughs> and he still got together, and we played Jamie Abersall records, and he was the nicest sweetheart of a guy. But you, you know, you got to be crazy to be a musician. You got to, and I mean, you got to be, you got to be into it. So I want a kid like that wants to practice a lot on their instrument, and they also want to like meet and find out what makes other great musicians tick. And we had a uh, we had a um, a show a, f a couple of years ago in, in uh, outside of Boston, and these two kids basically bogarted their way. They just conned their way backstage and soundcheck, and I saw them do it. And I said, whoa, 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 you guys just you went by the guard there and all that. I said, that's awesome. You, I'm gonna <laughs> I gave them two tickets. I had the whole audience. I had them stand up in the audience, and I said, this is what we need more of. Like kids that think that this, you know, like they can get to see their favorite band, they can go backstage, they can talk to the guy. You'd be surprised. Most people want to interact with a young person that's mm -hmm. enthusiastic about music. Yeah, I thought sure. it was a fantastic sure. thing those kids did. It showed initiative, and, and I, I, I'm into it. Because nowadays, most young people, they close the door, they say goodbye to mom and dad, they turn on the YouTube, they get the garage band out, and they're, they're, they're isolated, and they're they're put off from what makes music music and that's playing with other instrumentalists or chatting about it and even the word hanging out you know is so 
massive in jazz. You know, if you think you're going to learn how to play jazz from picking up a book or from, 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 from having one lesson with some hotshot teacher, it's hanging out with other musicians. You know this is as, mm -hmm. as much as the game as anything of life. You yeah. learn. And so how do you get a kid to, like, you know, get, get off the Internet and, and play an instrument, you know? And that's what I saw in your son. You know, he picked up his, picked up his trumpet and his embouchure looked exactly like yours, you know? <laughs> And I know that because I've stood next to you for years and years and years. And, it, you know, evidence, they don't fall far from the tree. But you, I want parents to try to instigate that in kids and take them out to see shows. Take them to see yours or Long Long or Josh Bell or whomever. It's important. Yeah, well, it's great that you do that. And I think uh, I couldn't agree more with you on, on every single one of those points. Chris, a few days ago I went to your website, and uh, you are clearly the hardest working man in show business. I mean, the itinerary is unbelievable. And just from a... From a logistical standpoint, from a mental standpoint, physical standpoint, I don't know how you do it. Every night you go out and just put out 110% and put on these amazing shows, and it's night after night. I mean, it is incredible. And for those of you who haven't gone to Chris's website, um, you got to check it out, and you can be, uh, it'll hit you to everywhere he's at and also tell you about new releases and new videos and everything that he's got going on. So make sure you go check out uh, chrisbody.com. But um, with that in mind, maybe you could share with us what's coming up for you in the coming year, and maybe do you have any, uh, you know, long-range goals and plans that you, I know you do, I'm sure, but, but things that you still want to achieve, even though it seems like you've achieved it all. Um, I, I, you know, I, I look at these other artists that, that do other things than one. You know, like, you know, they have a perfume line or they have a clothing line. And, mm -hmm. I, and then I look at Bob Dylan, who has, I'm not necessarily a big fan of Bob Dylan's music, but what I love about him is that he, he, he's got all the things that you need in life, success and notoriety and all that crazy. You know, he's got money, he's got all, he's got kids and all that stuff. And yet he goes from city to city to city and plays music. That's what he does. Gets off his tour bus, walks out there, plays for an audience, goes to the next town. He's not doesn't have a perfume line. I doubt it would be any good anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, my point is is that I think that there's something noble about having that be your life, you know, and I don't I've sacrificed a lot, I don't have a family and I don't uh necessarily uh I, time might have run out for that, you know, and so I'm gonna I I I'm I'm solely focused on, on doing a show every night, you know, and so wherever we are, you know, my brain's going like, you know, and it gets down to like just the minutia of like what am I going to say? Like where should I stand? Like how should we? What's the? Is this solo too long? Or what's the introduction to this? I'm, I'm going through all these all you know all the way until even through in the middle of the show I'm thinking about that. Mm -hmm. You know was this was this too heavy in the bass here? Or the arrangement here and this at you know and and then we hit the stage and the next day we go to the next city you know and so uh, but I I feel super lucky to be doing it. So next year we're going to tour. Um, th well right now we're booking you know, pretty much all the way through next year is going to be field touring. And then after that, I'm going to have both hips replaced or something. I'm going to be tired. I don't know. <laughs> but, I, but I don't, right now, I'm, I don't have any recording plans for next year. It'll probably be 2000, 2014. But um, we just finished a, a, a really fun uh, kind of uh, tour as, a, as uh, I did with, Barbara Streisand as her featured guest, mm -hmm. and that was massively f fun. And so maybe, maybe it wasn't that long. It was only twelve shows. Uh, she's only done ninety shows since nineteen sixty-three. Do the <sighs> math on that. 
and I was on 12 of them. I feel yeah, wow, yeah, great. Cool. Uh, and she was just such a, a, a gem to work with. And so maybe maybe we'll we'll maybe get something together again, do something like that. Very cool. Chris, well, um, I just want to ask you one more question, and, and you've given us so much great advice. I'm like, and it's like, I feel like it was 20 years ago, and I, I would always just be energized when Chris and I would do sessions together. He's that kind of guy, and, and you've given everybody just tremendous advice and insight today. But um, just if you had one single piece of advice that you would give to a young person who's sitting out there listening to you and, uh, and dreams, has the lofty dreams of being the next Chris Bode, uh, if it was possible to sum it up, what, what would that one piece of advice be? Well, possible to sum, it up, sum up my success is, is determination is, is by far and away the, the thing that outranks, you know, talent or, you know, like you've you got to really, you got to really be, want it and be determined. But, but I think that the, another common thread that most people have that are really successful and I'll meet a young person I'll say you know what kind of music do you like and if that kid says oh, I like all kinds of music I pretty much write him off mm -hmm. but when the kid says you know I like Led Zeppelin or <laughs> John Coltrane or Wynton Marsalis or whatever it is if they're passionate about it then that passion will resonate as they get older and figure out the focus and figure out where they're supposed to fit in the dance of life that stuff all works but they gotta have the they've gotta have the passion and the absolute dedication to something. And for me, when I was a kid, it was I mean it was Miles Davis. You know, it was just like Miles Davis, Miles Davis, Miles Davis. And we used to fight with my friends at college about how great Miles Davis. And they're like, well, no, what about Maurice Andre? I'm like, oh, Maurice Andre's great, but Miles Davis, you know, like. And so I I, I wish kids, you know, I wish them the best. But I, I think that they need to like, you know, look in the mirror and go, do I, do I really want this or do I? Do I kind of say I want it, and then I'm, I'm gonna? I really want to just, you know, be a banker or something. I don't know. Mm -hmm. That's good. Mm -hmm. That's a personal thing. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a, a great piece of advice, um, Chris. Thank you so much thank for you, taking Mike. time out today. For those of you who don't have Chris's latest CD, it's called Impressions. Amazing record. Go out and get it. Download it. It's it's worth every dollar. It's worth twice as much as they uh, <laughs> charge for it. But uh, check that out. Check out Chris when his next show. He'll be in your area. Obviously, he's going to be touring all in two, all of 2013. Uh, Chris, mostly thank you for for the time today and also the inspiration you've given oh, all of thanks, us. It's man. been it an amazing my uh, association. So good and, to see you. Uh, yeah, great to see you. So thanks all of you for uh, joining us on Bone to Pick, and we will see you next time.